connected? The Seattle Mariners. I, maybe you forgot that Seattle had a baseball team. They haven't been relevant in 20 years. Um, but if you've been following the, this season, it's, it, it's, a, it's been a lot of fun. Um, the Mariners, for the first time in 20 years, are playing a relevant game on the last game of the year today. They're fighting for a playoff spot. Actually, well, they're fighting for a, a tiebreaker game to a playoff spot, but that's all right. That's close enough for me. But they're fighting for it today, and, and it, was, <laughs> it was not expected. Let's just say that. They were not, they were, they've been rebuilding for a lot of years. And uh, a lot of years, yeah. Well, I don't know, like they weren't rebuilding and then they fired their general manager and then they started rebuilding, right? I mean, really. Uh, so they've been rebuilding and they've got a really young team and, uh, and the, the, the manager throughout the year, people couldn't figure out why they kept winning because their batting averages were terrible. And um, there's a statistic called run differential. Now, run differential is whether or not you're outscoring your opponents or they're outscoring you overall. And the Mariners have like a negative 47 run differential, which means they've been outscored by 47 runs throughout the course of this year. And so most of the teams that have that bad of a run differential, I think they're ranked 18th, they all have losing records, but somehow the Mariners keep winning. And so they asked their manager, Scott Service, they said, what is the difference? What do you make of this run differential? You guys are ranked like terribly with run differential, like 18th out of 30 teams. And he says, yeah, but we're ranked number one in fun differential. And, uh, and it's become kind of this like slogan because there's this young group of players and they're having so much fun that they actually just started winning. In fact, I think out of their last like, I don't know, like dozen games, they've won 10 of their last 12 or something like that. I might be a little off, but it's, I mean, they are just winning and winning and winning. And it all started with an outlook that was different. It was a different outlook. You know, they, they, they bring to the manager and they say, hey, look at this statistic. It's terrible. And he says, well, but look at this statistic. And they're like, wait, that can't be measured. And he was like, yeah, but that's our outlook, is we're going to have fun. And so they came with a different outlook into the year, and uh, it just started picking up steam. And uh, last night, as they were playing, and um, Mitch Haniger hit a, hit a base hit, and, and J.P. Crawford come running around, and he slid in at home. And he jumped up and just was jumping and, and just pumping everybody up. And you could tell, he's just having fun. And uh, it, I love the outlook that they have. And, and I think sometimes we need to take a look at our own outlook. Because we look at our own lives and we think, man, I am really down there far on the run differential, right? And, and we're looking at this and we say, you know, this outlook doesn't look very good. But then there's, there's something that God does within us when we reset our outlook, to something else. And so I want to talk to you about our outlook today and what that looks like in our lives as we reset our outlook. So this sermon series is called Resets, our theme for the year. If you are new with us, welcome. It's great to have you in here this morning. It's just a lot of fun to be back here at the school. It's been a year and a half and our teams were awesome this morning. We remembered how to set everything up for the most part. And, uh, and so you can join one of those teams and I'm sure they'll, they'll take you. So uh, let's get into the message here. We're going to be in Numbers 13. If you've got your Bible, you can open to Numbers 13. If you have your church app, you can open that up to Sermon Notes. It should be right on the bottom tray there. Abundant Life Ording is the app. If you don't have that, you can go to your store and download that. Um, sermon Notes are on there, plus a lot of other things as well. And uh, we'll get into that. Numbers 13. 
We'll start with verse 1 and 2, and we're going to take a look at our outlook this, this morning. So it says that, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Okay, so that's the beginning. The, they were, the Israelites had been wandering, and they, uh, well, they hadn't been wandering. They had left for, they had been like a year out. They had left from Egypt. They're going to wander later, uh, and we'll see why today. Um, and so here we go. We, God says, send some spies out into the land, because I've given you a promised land. Now, remember, this is the promised land that, that God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, 8, where it's, God says, uh, from the burning bush, he tells him, the promised land, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, he says. And so this is the land that he has. It's a bountiful land. And so we go down, let's skip down to verse 25. They went out and they spied the land and tells us everybody who went. And then in verse 25, we pick up and it says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And they reported to them the whole, and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you send us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Sorry, I skipped a bunch of verses. We'll just go with me. I just skipped the part where they went in and looked at everything. Just That's all right. We'll move along. Basically, they went in, they saw lots of things, and they brought home some grapes and things like that. So here we are. Um, are we caught up here? Sorry for the media people. I skipped around. Verse 29, it says, uh, so the, the fortified cities, they're very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. So they come back and they say, this is what we saw. Yes, it's a bountiful land. However, however, there's some problems we have because there are a lot of obstacles in our way. The cities are fortified. They're really strong. There's really big people there. Uh, there's giants. The descendants of Anak, we're talking Goliath and the like, right? So you got some big people. So they say this, and then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, hey, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can do it. So this is the report that comes back. Imagine being that only person who says, wait a minute. We can do this. And so they come back and they get a report and, uh, and they, they say, yes, this is what God promised. We went, we were told to go check it out and see is the land that God promised indeed what God promised. And they come back and say, yes, it is what God promised. It's everything he said. And they even brought back fruit. They brought back some grapes and they were a huge cluster of grapes. Everybody was in agreement on this one thing. They were in agreement that the land is good and what God said he was going to give us is indeed what it is. So that's a, that's a good report. But then this is where it breaks off into two different outlooks. You have an outlook that was rooted in fear, and it gave most of the attention to the obstacles in the land. And this was the majority of the people who gave the account. In fact, 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, well, yes, but there's all kinds of things that will make this not work. Outlook number two was rooted in faith, and it gave most of their attention to God's promise. And this was the minority outlook. In fact, only two of the 12 spies came back with this outlook. So they come in and they agree on one thing. The land is good. The land is what God said. And then you have 10 of the spies that say, however, uh, it's really not possible. We don't have what it takes. 
there's too much to do, the people will destroy us, and then the other two say, we got this, guys. We can do this, because this is what God has given us. And so you have two outlooks, and I want to talk to you about these two outlooks today, because I think in our lives, we end up falling into these same two outlooks. And, and there's, there's, of course, there's room in between, but I, I wonder what outlook we have in our life, because one of these is aligned with what God would have for us, and one of them is not. And the first one we'll look at, let's take a look at the majority. The majority came back with a problem-centered outlook. They came back with an outlook that was centered on the problem. In fact, the problem-centered outlook asks a simple question, what could go wrong here? What could go wrong? When you look at a situation and you see everything you're up against and you ask yourself, what could go wrong? The problem-centered outlook focuses on the size of the obstacle. It focuses on the strength of the obstacle. It focuses on the impossibility of the obstacle. You see, the problem-centered outlook inevitably results in fear. It results in fear because you look at a problem and you look at an obstacle in your life. Does anyone have obstacles in their life? Does anyone have problems? Are there any problems in this world whatsoever? Have you found any? I found a few. And, and what happens is, is that you can look at these things so much and you focus on them so much that end up overwhelming you. They end up bringing fear into your heart saying, I, I don't know if I can do this. This obstacle is too much. I don't know if I have what it takes. And it results in fear. Fear over the unknown. Fear over what could happen to me. And we see here that in this text that this, this fear, and we're going to keep going through this scripture this morning, this fear actually has a snowball effect on our outlook. And you'll see that when you focus on the problem and you allow the problem to get into your heart and you allow the, the question of what could go wrong here to get into your heart, you'll see it start to just go downhill and you'll see the snowball effect happen. So the first thing we see is that, that fear leads to exaggeration. And then we'll look in here in verse 13. Let's start back up in 31. It says... But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in their own eyes. And we looked the same to them. So in other words, we, we go into this land. That last line is, we, we looked like grasshoppers to them. And then also another way it's translated is, that's what they thought we looked like. That's what they thought about us. Is they thought we looked like grasshoppers. We were puny to them. We were nothing to them. And so they, they come in and they say to the whole assembly, they say, okay, here's the thing. We're not able. And they make some very extreme statements. They say, the land devours its inhabitants. I, I don't, it, we don't, any, nothing in the report shows anything about they found dead bodies everywhere. But the land devours its inhabitants. And, and remember, they went on this scouting trip and they saw that there were some giants in that land. They saw some. They saw some people, they, not everybody. They saw Canaanites. It shows all the tribes that they saw. And one of the tribes that they saw was the descendants of Anak, just one out of many, many, many. But here now, after Caleb steps up and says, we can do this, now they say, all the people are of great size. Everyone. We went there, every single person we saw was a giant. All of them. Guys, we cannot do this. And then they even say, the people there thought we looked like grasshoppers, as if they went and had conversations with these giants. 
and asked him, what do we look like to you? And so all these things start making these, all these exaggerations. And this last one, what you see is that now their exaggeration has now led to assumptions. Now they're making assumptions about their situation. It's not just that they looked at the problem and said, this is scary, and that there was fear over it, but now that fear caused them to exaggerate the entire situation. And now the situation is so much bigger, and now the exaggeration has led them to start making assumptions. Let's go to verse chapter 14, verse 1. So that night, all the members of the community raised their voices, and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if we had only died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Okay, hold on, time out. You went from a report, (laughs) the land is good, there was some disagreement about how hard it would be to take the land, And now because you've focused on the problem, you've let fear in, you've let exaggeration in, and now you're making an assumption. We're going to die. You haven't even started a battle. You even haven't stepped foot in. And notice there's crying and wailing, and nothing bad has happened yet. Not a single bad thing has happened. They just assumed that all these exaggerated statements were going to result in their inevitable destruction. And in their minds, they were as good as captured, defeated, or dead. It it was a foregone conclusion. It's over for us. Keep in mind that the same people one year earlier, one year before this, had walked through a the middle of the Red Sea on dry land. A year, just a year. I I mean, I can remember a year. I might not remember what I did, you know, forty years ago, but I remember a year ago. I mean. How do you forget if God does a miracle in your life, if God does something amazing, if you were in a place of, of slavery and bondage and, and you were being pursued by an army and God opens up a sea and you walk through and you look at the water walled up and you're walking through on dry land and as you get to the other side, the waters collapse and the army that's pursuing you drowns and is destroyed. You don't forget that in the period of 12 months. You simply do not forget it. And yet... They came to this place and said, it's over for us. The same people who had not only walked through that, but the same people who had been living here and and God had given them miraculous provision, that he had given them food that came out of nowhere. The same people who saw water pour out of a rock. I don't know the last time I saw water pour out of a rock, except never. (laughs) This same people, they saw they were, they needed water and it, it came it came, they, they've seen God do these amazing, amazing things. But because they were entirely focused on what was in the way, they started making assumptions about what the outcome was going to be. So now they've, they've carried themselves all the way down this line. This is now what's going to happen. How do you get there? How do you get to this place of the land is good and God has promised to we're all going to die? And now... To make matters worse, they didn't just, the exaggeration just didn't lead to assumption. Now the assumption has left to complete despair. Absolute despair. They say this, let's go uh, the rest of verse 3 and then uh, through 5. It says, Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly, gathered there. In other words, they just fell on their face and just probably started bawling their eyes out. It's all over for us. Let, think about this. They're right there at the entrance. They're right there about to enter the promise that God has for them. And they say, hey, you know, let's just go back to Egypt and be slaves. Let's go back to Egypt. How, how do you go from the Lord has given us this land to let's go back to slavery? How do you get there? It seems like a huge leap, but it's not a huge leap if you have a problem-centered outlook. It's not a big leap because you get there. They got to a point of resignation. They said to themselves, I guess it just is what it is. There's nothing that we can do about it. We'd rather just be subservient and live than to take a chance on becoming the nation that God has intended us to be. We'd rather just give in. We'd rather, rather than being a nation who worships God freely, rather than being a nation who stands against evil, rather than being a nation who brings glory to God, we'll just, we'll give it all up and we'll just go back and we'll just do what we're told and we'll just live that way. And yet God hadn't called his people to live that way. God doesn't call his people to live that way. And it all came about because 10 of the 12 spies came back with a problem-centered outlook. They looked at their world as though everything is about to fall apart. Everything's going to fall apart. Obstacles in our world. Listen, there are obstacles in our world right now. I'm sure you can think of some. And if we look at those things, the despair will get us all the way back to, I guess I should just lay down and give up everything that God has given me. I'll give up every right. I'll give up every liberty. I'll give up every um, bit of faith that I have. I'll give it all up because I guess there's nothing else I can do. And God says that is not the way that I've called my people to live. And there were two men, Joshua and Caleb. They saw things differently. So let's keep, let's keep going here. I think this is our last section. It says, Then Moses, so we got there, and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly and gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, they tore their clothes, which, by the way, was a sign of grief. They would tear their clothes. They were in so much grief, they would just tear their clothes. It, it was a physical way to show, like, I am in grief right now over what I am hearing and seeing. And they tore their clothes, and they said through the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. I imagine them getting really, really big about it. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people in the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them totally different outlook. You see, because they went, see, here's the difference between them. They went in with a right objective. They went in with a completely different objective. They went in to see what is the Lord giving us. And that was their mission. And we'll get back to that here in a second, but the other spies went in with, is it possible? They went with a completely different objective and they returned with a different outlook. The right objective will lead to the right outlook in our lives. What are our objectives? They were determined to fight for the land. They believed that with God, all things are possible. They were certain that the Lord would lead them to victory. 
Which brings us to the second outlook, and that is the promise-centered outlook. So you have two outlooks you can choose from, the problem-centered outlook or the promise-centered outlook. The promise-centered outlook asks the question, what could go right? What could go right here? You see, Joshua and Caleb, they scouted this land with this different objective. Their mission was for intel and strategy, not should we or shouldn't we. They went with that objective. They saw the same things, but they saw the same things differently. And if that's not relevant for today, if God's word isn't relevant for today, I don't know what is. They saw the same things, but they saw the same things differently. Let's go back to verse 1. I just want to read verse 13, verse 1 again. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. Let's, let's make sure it doesn't say this. Which you might be able to get into if you fight hard enough. Which which is going to be near impossible, and many of you will die, but some of you might make it. No, he says, I am giving. God has already determined, I am giving you this land. And their outlook was anchored in God's promise and God's power. Not their ability, not their strength, not the obstacle that was in the way. They knew that the Lord had already given them the land. It had already been stated. God already told Moses. They already knew the character of God. Do you know the character of God? They knew the promises of God. They knew the power of God, and their outlook was aligned with all of that, with God's power, with God's promises, with God's abilities, with God's outlook. And they asked, what could God do in this situation? What could God do here? What is it that looks impossible in my eyes, but is nothing in God's eyes? I wonder in your life what looks impossible in your eyes, but is possible in God's eyes. Is there anything, David and Jackie, is there anything at all that looks impossible in your eyes, but is possible in God's eyes? There's a testimony there. I'm just going to single them out. There are God... If we begin to look with God's outlook, we will see things totally different. And I believe it's time for God's church to stop focusing on the size of the obstacle and start focusing on the size of our God. Like we've got to start looking, how big is my God when I get to this thing? How big is my God? This is the lens in which Joshua and Caleb viewed their situation. It's the only reason that they had courage. I don't, I don't know that Joshua and Caleb were necessarily more inherently courageous than the rest. They might have been, but I believe they had courage because they knew the size of their God. They knew the promise of their God. I believe that's why they were bold and determined, because their outlook was aligned with what God can do. And so you have, <laughs> you have these 12 people go in, and you have vastly different reports. And you have a problem-centered outlook that asks what could go wrong and a promise-centered outlook that asks what can go right. And you have these two men that were willing to take a stand when the rest of the nation was wailing. The rest of the nation was saying, it's not going to work. And so what happened? What happened next? 
What's the outcome of this? What is the outcome in our lives when we say, I will stand on God. I will stand on his promises. I will stand on his word. I will stand on his strength. I will stand in my faith in my God. If we begin to live that way, what will the outcome be? Well, let's take a look. Because this whole thing reminds me of like a Braveheart moment. Most of you have probably seen Braveheart. I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I, I think of the William Wallace, and you might take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom, you know, and he charges up, and the armies rises up, and you join the cause, and you take the land, and that's what's supposed to happen here, right? Because these two men stood up. Isn't that how the story's supposed to end? Like, that's what, that's what we know, that's what I see in these men of faith. They stood against doubt, and they stood against fear, and they rallied the nation, and everything was about to just go all the way for God and the land was going to be occupied. Isn't that what should happen next? But it says here, let's go to verse 10. I don't know what happens in your life when you take a stand for God. I don't know what happens in your life when you say, I am going to stand for God. But here's what happens in verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Hold on. That's not what I planned when I said we can do this. What's going on here? They were met with hostility for aligning their outlook with God's outlook. I don't think that's what they expected. I don't think that's what they... Do you expect that when you align yourself with God? When you stand up and you take a stand? When you say, I will live by faith? Do you expect hostility? Because that's what they got. They got hostility. It's it's not the outcome that I would expect in my own life. I, I, I expect... That when I'm making a stand in faith, that, that it's gonna, it, people are going to rally with me. But instead, I'll find that the majority of people, they're frustrated with you. They're angry with you. They ridicule you. Do you find this? Have you seen this in your life? Here's what I need you to know. Joshua and Caleb were undeterred in their promise-centered outlook, even despite the response that they got. Because this outlook is not popular. It wasn't popular among God's people, and it certainly isn't popular in the world in which we live now. But it does bring the favor of God upon your life. See, when you align yourself with the way of God, you're aligning yourself with the favor of God. When you align yourself with God's way, you're aligning yourself with God's favor. You're aligning yourself with the one who is the name above all names. You're aligning your life that way. You're aligning yourself with the one who is above all powers and all authorities. You're aligning yourself with the one who is above all sickness and disease. You're aligning your life with the one who has reigned, is reigning, and will reign forevermore. That is who you are aligning your life with. And the rest of this story, it plays out over many chapters. We're not going to read the whole book of Numbers today. But I want you to know that it does continue on. And here's what happens. Right after the people started talking about stoning them. If you don't know what that is, that's death by rocks. Not a great way to go. Not at all. We live in Washington. Stoned means something different here. But... um, (laughs) They, got st- they, they, they were going to get stoned in a different way. Um, it still hurts you just differently. Um, here's what happens, though. Can you imagine the conversation that's the murmuring that goes through all the crowd? Like the whole, it says the whole assembly. You're talking thousands of people. 
there's, this comp, there's all this murmuring going, let's kill them. It's over. These guys are nuts. We, we can't do this. What are if they don't stop talking, then that means someone's going to believe them and we're going to go in there and get killed in, our, in that land. And right at that moment, it says in verse 10, it says, Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The presence of the Lord showed up in their midst. And when the presence of the Lord shows up, what's he going to find? When God shows up in a situation, what's he going to find? When he showed up there, you know what he found? He found two people who believed what he said is true. And thousands, maybe millions, of others who did not. He found two. He found two people who said, I believe that what God says is true. I believe that I should align my life with what God's outlook is and not my own. And that's what the presence of the Lord found. That's what God found when he got there. The presence of the Lord shut down all that conversation about killing these two. And this spy mission, this mission that they went on, you know what it resulted in? It resulted in 40 years of wandering in the desert for the Israelites. Well, 39 more years. They had been out a year. They wandered in the desert. 40 years. This, this nation who was right there, I mean, they're right at the entrance to the promise of God, the promised land, everything he said he would give them. They're right there. Their toes are on the line. But because everybody but two people decided that the problem-centered outlook was probably the safest bet, they wandered for 40 years. And over the course of the 40 years, every single person who was present that day died, every one of them. Out of those thousands upon thousands of people that day, two people entered the promised land 40 years later. Their names were Joshua and Caleb. Because God came down and he saw two men who said, you will, they are aligning their life with faith. They are aligning their life with what my word says, with my promises, with my power. And God honored that. The only ones who ever stepped foot in that promised land. And I wonder in our own lives, like what is our outlook? In our own lives, what is our outlook? If we put ourselves in this story, who are we? What is our outlook and does it need a reset? Because I find in my life there are times where I'm going along and I'm good and then I hit a, a spot and I go, oh, time out, my outlook needs a reset. Because I, I, I've started, my mind has wandered down this path. My outlook needs a reset. Am I focused on the problem or am I focused on the one who can carry me through the problem? What's my outlook? I believe as a church, as we reset it's time to reset our outlook on the promises of God. That we would set our outlook on what God's word says. That we would set our outlook on who he is, on his power, on his might, what he is capable of. But you know what that's going to require? It's going to require that you dig into his word and you find his promises. That you're going to need to dig into his word and you're going to find out his character that you're going to need to dig into your prayer life and begin to approach your problems with his power. That you need to dig into your worship life and approach your problems with praise. 
I mean, you could read through the Old Testament, and it's, it's kind of funny. Like, no offense, I'm, this is not... They sent musicians at the front of the battle lines. Like, I, I bet you guys can fight, right? But, I mean, there's warriors present, and God said, let's go have some worship first. Because the presence of God would come to the Israelites, and he would fight the battle for them, and with them, and through them. And so if we reset our outlook, we got to dig into his word. We got to be guided by his word. We got to dig into our prayer life so that we can walk through this life with the power of God in our worship. I mean, change the station if you need to. I mean, when you are, when you are at your max, when you are at your max and you're stressed out and there's nothing left and you're driving home from work and you're on 167, the worst road ever created on the earth, and you just, your knuckles are white and you're trying to distract yourself so you got talk radio on or sports radio on and then someone says something on the news and it just, you just said, oh man, the vein pops out of your forehead and you can't wait, right? I mean, I, I'll tell you what, for me, I listen to worship music all the time. Like all the time. So much, so much so like that's just, like, if, I, if I'm going to live my life, I want that to be the soundtrack. Because when, I, when I'm driving down the road and my knuckles are white and I'm frustrated, like, I, I could have one of two things filling my mind. I could, I could have the battle belongs to the Lord, or I can have whatever this person says over here that I either agree or disagree with that gets me amped up. And when I go into my situations and I fill myself with the truth of God, you know, music's just, we can memorize lyrics faster than we can memorize anything else. I, and the words of God, they just kind of flow over me. And I'm reminded over and over, like, this is who God says that he is. And I begin to align my thinking with that. I begin to align myself with that. And so we've got to ask ourselves this morning, in our, in our life, are we viewing things with a problem-centered outlook? Could we shift our, our focus to a promise-filled outlook that is aligned with what God can do? What does that look like in our life? I, I, I hope that today you take an opportunity to go to the Lord and say, God, I need to reset my outlook because I want to align it with who you are and what you can do. Amen? Will you stand with me today? I want to pray over you. As always, prayer is available here at church. We believe in praying here at church. And so we'll have a prayer team up here up front if you'd like prayer for this exact thing. If you're saying, look, I need to reset my outlook. You may be gripped and paralyzed right now. You may be discouraged. You may be overwhelmed. And you need someone to pray with you and you need God to reset your outlook. Come pray with someone. If you need prayer for something else, come pray with someone. We'd love to pray with you. But let's respond to the Lord in worship today and ask him to come and to reset our outlook. I want to pray for you before we do. Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, we come with all of our outlooks. We come with our, our fears. We come with our doubts, Lord. We come with, with the obstacles and the circumstances in our life that we, we sometimes don't know what to do with, Lord. And I pray that you would take our focus off of those things and place our focus back on you. Lord, that I, 
I see this, this picture of Peter walking upon the stormy waters and as he begins to sink, it's because he took his eyes off of you and he reached down and you pick him back up. So God, we refocus our eyes on you today so that we can walk in the midst of the storm. We refocus our eyes on you. God, reset our outlook today that our outlook would be centered on your promises, centered on your power, centered on your purposes and on nothing else. Lord, would you come and would you reset our outlook today in Jesus' name, amen.